Welcome to CII Podcasts. We have with us Mr. Mark Carney, the UN Special Envoy for Climate Action and Finance and co-chair G Funds and uh, chair and head of Transition Investing, Brookfield Asset Management. Thank you very much for uh, that kind introduction. And I'm going to talk on this topic of revitalizing how the net zero transition can help revitalize economic growth. Um, but let me start with an acknowledgement of where we are, because we are really living through an age of crises. We've had a crisis in finance with the global financial crisis, a crisis obviously in health with COVID, in energy uh, and in geopolitics. And each of those shocks, if you look at the sort of path of global GDP there, each of those shocks has changed the slope, the trajectory of global growth. Uh, it's slowed the trend rate and it's meant that the total cost of uh, our biases, because these crises have come from biases, biases uh, towards efficiency in the present as opposed to uh, an emphasis on resilience in the future, the cost of that can be measured now cumulatively in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. Um, now, the most damaging of these crises, of these tragedies of the horizon, uh, is climate change. But conversely, it means that the greatest opportunity is to build a sustainable economy. Accelerating the net zero transition will affect every sector of our economies in every region of the world. It will be capital intensive. After decades when there's been too little investment, it'll be job heavy during a period which is coming of AI-fueled uh, creative destruction. Now, bottom line, I have little doubt anymore that the net zero transition will happen eventually. It's what people want and it's what future generations deserve. And the commitment, at least on paper, of countries, uh, of com companies, uh, major companies and financial institutions, uh, the commitments to net zero are now overwhelming. In addition, entrepreneurs and innovators and businesses, many of them uh, in this room, are increasingly focused on the enormous value that can be created solving what is an existential problem. And this hardening of the social consensus as illustrated on that slide has really been a catalyst for an explosion of investment in clean energy, bringing the energy transition as itself to an inflection point. So the prospect of $1.7 trillion this year, not the prospect, that's what is going to happen. That's what's happening as we speak uh, of investment larger than the investment in the conventional energy um, in clean tech where it's going. Um, and that momentum is moving up the chain. It's driving a surge in manufacturing capacity. And as decarbonization becomes a key driver of company and country competitiveness, is for company competitiveness, we're seeing valuation premiums rise across the sector. So across sector, those who are lower carbon trade at material premiums now to those who are not. And in addition, you're getting credit and excess returns as a company if you're moving from a laggard uh, to a leader uh, within your sector. But, you knew there would be a but or else I would stop speaking right here. Um, despite this growing momentum, there are grave risks, real risks that the transition will not happen in time. The climate commitments and policies of countries 
While much improved, are still insufficiently ambitious. The gap between uh, the top line, which is the warming of actual policies if they're implemented, and the bottom line, which is what countries have said they're going to do. Um, and the energy transition, I showed you that slide a moment ago with the ramp up in that clean energy that going to a ratio of about one and a half times conventional energy. That's what that $1.7 trillion gets us. Well, it, and Lynn, we, uh, ladies of Rothschild, we talked about this during your panel, that ramp needs to keep going. Um, and uh, there is a huge shortfall in cross-border climate finance available for emerging and developing economies. Um, uh, Ex-China, what's needed is about a trillion dollars additional per year for those economies of external finance uh, by the end of uh, this decade. Look, um, I won't spend too much time on this aspect, but I just want to reinforce that it's clear we don't have time to spare. On the latest estimates, um, the world's remaining carbon budget uh, to limit temperature rises to one and a half degrees will be exhausted by the end of this decade. And as a consequence of where we are, uh, the Earth's average temperature is already almost 1.2 centigrade above pre-industrial levels. And that's leading to a multi multiplication of extreme weather events, um, greater impacts on our finely tuned ecosystems, and mounting economic costs. This year, much of Asia baked under record-breaking heat waves. Last month was the hottest July the world has ever recorded. Europe and North America have been ravaged by record wildfires. China has been flooded by the heaviest rains in 150 years. And Alliance um, has estimated that this rash of extreme weather events, and after all, they're one of the world's largest property and casualty and reinsurers, uh, they estimate that this has reduced global growth this year by half a percentage point. And these calamities were predicted. Now that shouldn't offer us uh, any comfort, obviously, but it should add greater urgency because even if we're successful in limiting uh, temperature increases to one and a half degrees, extreme weather events will become even more frequent and more severe. And that prospect, that one and a half degree prospect, is becoming more likely uh, as nature approaches its tipping points and climate action, uh, while increasing climate action by governments, remains insufficient. I'll give you one example uh, from my native Canada, and welcome uh, the uh, High Commissioner here, uh, Canada, um, Cameron. Um, the wildfires we've experienced in Canada thus far this year, you can see how they compare to historic, um, are pumping the equivalent of three times Canada's annual emissions uh, into the atmosphere. That is the feedback loop we get with extreme weather. So the stakes are high, they're rising, and they're rising and they're going to rise from an economic perspective. And I'll just say a few words about the economic cost before I get towards solutions. Um, the conservative estimates of that two and a half degrees uh, warming, that what we're on track for, um, is that that could cause the equivalent of no growth for a decade uh, for the balance of this century. And as significant as that is, a truly lost decade for the world, um, those estimates don't include some of the major economic channels um, that climate change will trigger, such as financial instability, disruptions to supply chains, 
and climate-induced mass migration. Now, the re only reason they don't include them is that, that this is where I admit that there's limitations to economic forecasting, as if you hadn't figured that out already, given our track record. Um, those estimates also don't take into account that almost half of the world's GDP, as the World Bank has shown, we're joined by the World Bank here, has shown, uh, is at least partially uh, dependent on natural assets. And they ignore um, that so much of what climate change destroys, species, habitats, ways of life, natural beauty, isn't formally valued. You know, to paraphrase Einstein, too much of what counts is not counted. So obviously, at a minimum, there is enormous value in preventing this destruction. But the prize of the net zero transition is even greater because if we do it properly, it can help revitalize global growth and it can do so uh, through at least four channels. And the first is that this transition represents a multi-decade investment boom after a decades-long drought. To get on track, to be on track, to deliver one and a half degrees of global warming, global investment must rise from about two and a half percentage points of GDP, that is investment in energy infrastructure, two and a half percentage points of GDP to four and a half percentage points by 2030. That's that ramp I showed you earlier. Those are big numbers. We talked about them in an earlier panel. But I just want to underscore that sort of percentage, that shift is achievable. This is what the world used to do collectively as a percentage of GDP uh, at the turn of the last uh, millennium. And there's a big return on this. Uh, the IEA's estimates are that um, with more sustainable energy systems, competitive economies, jobs, higher growth, global growth would, or global output would be about 4%, uh, at least higher by 2030 if we get on track. In addition, um, there's some productivity effects, optimization across uh, the value chain, um, uh, finding the best ways to produce, optimization of demand. There's been a lot of focus uh, thus far on, um, on the supply side, getting clean energy in place, rightly so. Uh, but huge savings, including productivity savings, um, in reducing the demand for carbon-intensive products and processes. Um, and that's why we're seeing uh, increasingly companies focused on continuous improvements uh, in energy intensity. And that's, in, in our view, is something that's going to accelerate. And finally, there's just the natural process of the market of capitalism, because as something happens very quickly, you end up with choke points. So we see it today with uh, uh, critical uh, metals and minerals uh, as an example. Um, and it also shines a light on the need for additional innovation in key technologies. Think uh, hydrogen. Again, a number of you are helping to move this forward. Uh, small modular reactors is another example. These technologies, the importance of them be, uh, become more uh, poignant, more immediate uh, as we uh, have success with others. And, you know, economic history suggests that if something is going to cost an additional four, five, seven trillion dollars a year, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, businesses who will find ways to make it cheaper, faster, and better. And this is a, a dynamic we've already seen in solar, we've seen it in wind, we've seen it in storage. It's beginning to take hold in hydrogen. And really the question is whether it will move uh, fast enough. And 
And so for the balance of my comments, um, I'm going to move to um, what needs to be uh, what needs to be accomplished uh, in order for this to happen, uh, particularly in the financial sector. But look, let me start with what can't deliver. And I think we uh, recognize this. This is part of the reason why the G20 is central to uh, this year's G20. Um, we have governments with limited fiscal capacity. This series of shocks and crises are straining their uh, their budgets. Uh, the imperatives of healthcare, defense, support for households hit by uh, energy shocks, and the, um, all of that is drawing uh, on their resources. Um, so, to, but to get the scale of private capital that we need in a way that revitalizes growth, we need markets, the economy to operate to its full potential. And I'm going to suggest five key principles. Um, and the first and foremost element of this is that companies, or sorry, countries, countries must pursue increasingly ambitious climate policies. Just like we see the ramp that's going uh, in clean energy investment, we need to see climate action become increasingly ambition, ambitious. Um, I will put a plug in, that's the virtuous circle uh, that uh, Secretary Yellen and I identified in some research um, that what happens is with more credible policies, um, the more investors, businesses act in anticipation of climate action, in anticipation of that gap between ambition and policy as that closes. Uh, and that creates this circle of larger investment, faster decarbonization, more jobs, faster growth. What it also means is that the more credible those policies are, investments brought forward and the less that ultimately has to be done. And there's a lot of econometrics behind that chart, but basically the anticipated carbon, or the, if you anticipate what the government is going to do, it has to ultimately uh, do less. A little bit like central banking. If you know the Fed is going to take the necessary actions, they don't have to overshoot uh, in terms of the action because the market pulls it forward. Um, and I'd suggest that we're seeing this, we're seeing this on a global basis. I'm going to use the U.S. Uh, Inflation Reduction Act as an example. Um, US, it is putting the U.S., bottom line, close to being on track for a 50% reduction uh, in emissions by the end of this decade. That is a remarkable set of legislation and it's successful because it is simple. You can understand the core incentives very uh, readily in terms of the tax credits. It's predictable. The rules are clear and the support is open-ended. It's open-ended over the course of the next 10 years. Uh, it's credible, the U.S. can afford it, um, and the facts on the ground, I'll come to those, are making it increasingly robust uh, in terms of policy, and it's transformative. Um, and this is a slightly complicated chart. This goes across all basically clean tech uh, uh, technologies, but what you want to know is that the level of the stack, um, which averages about 40%, is the cost reduction from the IRA and other uh, policies. So across the board, that's the uh, economic impact which is helping to drive that investment. And in terms of the orders of magnitude of that investment, it's galvanizing over $200 billion uh, in the course of the last year. Reasonable estimates suggest about $3 trillion in total of investment over the course of the next decade. And that scale, there are issues with the IRA, we all know, but that scale will have global positive spillovers in terms of getting costs down that we'll all benefit from. Um, of course, 
Other countries aren't waiting, the countries are responding. Canada is largely matching the US uh, incentives. The EU is using a combination of carrots, which is what the IRA is mainly about, a few sticks and promises of better delivery. Um, uh, China's looks on path, given their policy set, to overachieving their intensity target for 2030. Uh, and India's uh, 2030 target, is, including its 50% renewables objective, and both very ambitious, uh, increasingly look uh, within reach. So there's real action here and real credibility that's being built up. Um, the second principle uh, we should follow is to involve the whole economy. Um, we, again, we talked about this on our panel. We cannot have a situation where capital is constrained by regulation or, um, or simplistic bans on financing of, of uh, whole industries. All that happens with that is paper decarbonization. If you're a, a single financial institution, you get rid of that exposure, someone else ends up with it. And what it does is it starves um, plans to reduce emissions. Instead, capital uh, must be incentivized to go where the emissions are for those companies that have plans to get down. Third point, we need to ramp up before we shut down. We can't have a smooth transition um, unless we have the replacement uh, before the existing. This is how we minimize uh, disruption, help workers and communities uh, have time to repair, uh, prepare, retrain and relaunch. And so it's critical to set expectations for the time horizon for that. Um, so Canada, the EU, the UK in different ways have all put in place moratoria on new internal combustion vehicle sales by 2035. That tells the auto industry to get ready now. And it's one of the reasons we're seeing this huge uh, range of investment in battery storage technology, uh, new EVs. Um, I would say that uh, India's uh, objective of 500 gigawatts of clean power by 2030 has a similar uh, impact. There are other examples, but those, those are two um, uh, major initiatives that have this effect. Um, fourth of my five points on the principles is the importance of recognizing what we call the time value of carbon, which means that reducing emissions today, however you do it, is incredibly uh, value because it extends the horizon um, for that innovation that needs to happen. And it also extends the horizon for just the scale of investment that needs to happen in clean, ener uh, in clean energy. It takes time in a number of jurisdictions to roll out tens and hundreds of gigawatts uh, of clean power. Uh, and uh, too often that is underestimated. Um, and in this regard, um, the COP president's, COP president-designate, uh, COP28 president's uh, initiative uh, to double the efficiency of uh, the, the carbon efficiency of oil and gas production um, and uh, have uh, uh, conventional energy companies uh, signed up to near zero methane uh, by 2030. Um, this will result in double digit, if it's followed through, double digit reductions. Uh, in emissions, effective uh, uh, emissions by the end of the decade, which buys time. It's a value in and of itself. Um, and that's why uh, we need to grasp the nettle as well on voluntary carbon markets, which in effect, bottom line, what they mean 
is that there are transfers of resources from some of the wealthiest, uh, most well-resourced companies in the world, uh, mainly in the, uh, in the G7 and others, to projects and initiatives in the emerging uh, world. Now, last point uh, in terms of principles, and I'll talk a few words in, on finance in conclusion. Um, we need an open trading uh, and financial system to build uh, the efficient global supply chains, industrial processes for this. And I'll acknowledge there are big headwinds on the trading side. Uh, the EU's uh, CBAM me mechanism, elements of the Inflation Reduction Act and other green industrial policies which focus on, focus on local production. And thirdly, the more being low carbon is viewed as a vector of national competitiveness, the greater uh, these pressures will be. So part of what the G20 needs to do is, is limit uh, I'm not naive enough to think it'd be eliminated, but limit uh, or channel these pressures for fragmentation. Okay, um, I said I'd conclude, although it'd be a slightly long conclusion about some priorities in the finance uh, section in this context. Um, and let me just start with a headline, which is, look, we had an industrial revolution. Part of the reason, I'll say this as former governor of the Bank of England, uh, part of the reason we could have an industrial revolution in the UK was they had a revolution in finance. I won't go through all the details of that. We can have a long conversation with coffee if you want, um, although you regret it. Um, but the point is, we're having a revolution, another industrial revolution, at the pace of the digital uh, transformation. And we need some pretty profound changes to the financial system. And I just want to underscore a few of them. The first is at the very foundations. Uh, we need to measure all greenhouse gases that are produced, avoided, reduced. And that's why we need the G20 to endorse the ISSB standards. These are disclosure standards they've been worked on, they're global standards. Um, and one of the most important aspects of that is it includes scope three emissions. So the emissions up and down your value chain. What this does is it aligns incentives across that value chain, including into the emerging and developing world, um, and will help drive real decarbonization. Second point. We need a common definition of transition finance, and that definition needs to include all of the four strategies that GFANCE has identified, but what I will, what I will uh, highlight is um, going where the emissions are, so-called alignment and, uh, or aligning and uh, managed phase out. Uh, that should be underpinned by accountability. You can't just say you're doing that. Something called the net zero data public utility Sounds wonky, it is wonky, but it's really important. Finally, the Indian presidency, and N.K. Singh is, uh, has been here, it's come up in a few places. Uh, it is rightly emphasized that we need to finance emissions reductions everywhere. The world has, uh, has a system, we've been caught in a, what I would call a paradox of prudence where individual financial institutions, including the IFIs, are carefully husbanding uh, their capital and fostering or being part of fostering an existential uh, risk. And that needs to change. That change, the impetus for that change can only come, not from the institutions themselves, it can only come from the shareholders uh, through the institutions. Uh, what we're doing uh, with the new president of the World Bank, Ajay Banga, is um, helping to work with bank management to determine some mechanisms to make the most of new approaches, new, approach, new risk appetite and potentially capital approaches to guarantees, first loss uh, and blended finance. Um, now, I want to um, 
really reinforce something that uh, our chair, Chandra, uh, referenced yesterday and uh, Uday Kotak uh, referenced, I think, yesterday and also today, uh, which is one of the B20 initiatives, uh, which is to build on the experience here uh, in India, uh, where the largest corporations, uh, in effect, post-tax, ba uh, sorry, 200 basis points, 2% of their profits going to corporate social responsibility. And the proposal uh, is to take a portion of that for Indian corporations, but to challenge, and it's the right challenge to companies around the world, to take not 200 basis points, not 2%, but 20 basis points, so a tenth of that, and dedicate it um, to a new global acceleration fund in support of the core sustainable development goals. And the reason, having had experience at G20, this is a good in idea in and of itself. It's a huge amount of money, but it also puts the challenge not just to the companies, but to the governments as well, because we could set up a fund, and this is the idea, um, that then leverages this loss absorbency and has uh, the potential, you know, China seven, eight times uh, potential leverage from that uh, and have a real impact. And I, I think it can help, uh, as I say, good in and of itself and channel with um, uh, governments and, and sh uh, shareholders uh, to do more with the capital that they have, including the contingent capital they have with the institutions. Okay, last few words. Look, I... Um, misspent youth um, and middle age, maybe misspent middle age. Uh, I spent many years around the G20 table uh, as a central bank governor and also at the leaders meetings in my role at the Financial Stability Board. And I would say from experience that these meetings take place, uh, normally there is a crisis going on. Sometimes you, if you look back at the, you can't remember what the crisis was, but it seemed really important. Uh, sometimes they're more fundamental like the global financial crisis or COVID. And in the backdrop, there are these broader secular forces that are going to help determine our fate. Um, so the fourth industrial revolution, the building climate crisis, two examples. And it's the job of G20 leaders to manage both the immediate and the longer term. And let's face it, their record hasn't been great on managing the longer term, which is why India's presidency is taking place at a time of these powerful forces of fragmentation just when we need to come together to meet our greatest challenges. Um, now, when they're successful, when these meetings are successful, it's because there's an establishment of a shared purpose backed up by specific tangible initiatives that help move you in that direction. So London 2009 was there. So finish with this, which is India has the right purpose. One earth, one family, one future. And in order to achieve those goals, we need one market. As much as possible, we need one market for that net zero transition. And to that end, and I've gone through these, so I won't repeat them, uh, the B20 is tabling very specific initiatives, including uh, the Global Acceleration Fund, um, to help build the finance the world needs now. And one market for transition finance so that all can share, not just in the stronger growth that the world needs now and we need it now, but build a sustainable economy so that our children and grandchildren get the future that they deserve tomorrow. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to CII Podcasts.